Well, good morning. Uh, over the last uh, many years, I've had 10 to 12 opportunities to go down to Central America, to Honduras, for mission trips. First time I went, I went alone. Second time, I brought three girls with me. I wasn't married yet. It was just a small group of us. And on that second trip, the guy we were visiting, the town we were visiting, a pastor, um, he invited us to go to this historic site that he thought would be of interest to us. His name was Dago. He's the pastor of the church in Lesebe there that we're associated with. In fact, Dago used to actually attend our church. And so we drove off to this town called Trujillo. It's located two to three hours away from Lesebe where we were. And I was seated in the front of this van we were using and Dago was driving and then there were two rows behind us, five or six people behind us. And as we were driving along, I noticed this little kid up ahead who was holding in his hand two iguanas. And he was holding them upside down by their tails out by the road there. And, and the iguanas had their legs kind of tied together awkwardly in the back. Uh, these iguanas had really long nails and they were just kind of connected in the back. And he's just holding them out there. And and when I saw him out there, I said to Doggo, could, could I get a picture of him? I mean, would that be okay if I took his picture? And Doggo said, sure, and we pulled over and Doggo rolled down his window and the two talked in Spanish. I really didn't understand what they were saying. And, and Doggo turned to me and he said, well, you can go ahead and take the picture. And so I got out, I took the picture, I got back in the van. And then the little boy came back around to the front seat and Doggo pulled out his wallet and gave the boy some lempiras, which is their money, some paper money he gave to the kid. And then I was really surprised to see that the boy took one of the iguanas and handed it to Doggo. Doggo brought it in the van and set it down by my feet. Now, I, didn't, I honestly didn't bother, I wasn't too bothered by that because I used to catch, connect, or catch snakes and things and and so I wasn't bothered. I was trying to be careful, though, because if I stepped on it, I didn't want it to bite me or something like that. But everything was okay. And so we, we made our way to Trujillo. And, and this particular town is interesting because it's where Christopher Columbus landed when he discovered Central America. He landed in Trujillo there in, in Honduras. In fact, uh, Columbus is the one who actually named the country Honduras. The name means depths. And he was referring to the fact that the waters surrounding the coast of Honduras were very, very deep. Also, in this same town, there's an, an old Spanish fortress, just the ruins of it, from the 17th century. And so this was going to be really interesting. And so we arrive at our destination, we leave the iguana in the van, and we go and we tour things, and we're there an hour or two, I'm not sure how long, but it was time to head back to the Seba. I opened the front door and a horrible smell assaulted me. And I looked down and the iguana had done its business right there on the carpeting by my feet. And, and not to gross you out, but it was a lot. Like a, like a dog. And they have long tails, so, well, I mean, you can kind of get... Whatever, so Doggo realized we can't leave yet until we fix this problem, so we put the, the iguana somewhere. He's, of course, tied up. I think we put him out on the grass, and Doggo cleaned up the mess graciously. Huge spot by my feet. Then, when it was time to get back in the van, he decided that he did not want the iguana up in the front with me, 
where the carpeting was because the rest of the van had this rubberized floor on it and so he put the iguana in the back. Well, nobody wanted it back there. Uh, I'm sure that most of the people in the back were afraid of it. Here's, by the way, a picture of an iguana. And this, is a, this one is a nice-looking iguana. Uh, I jumped into a jungle river once, also in Honduras. I jumped down literally 20 feet into this river and found myself face-to-face with uh, an iguana, and it looked like a demon. <laughs> really scary-looking. But nobody wanted it back there with them, and so they were all pulled up their feet on the seat and were trying to sit there and... Everything was fine while we were driving back. Maybe an hour or so, it got dark. It got really dark. All of a sudden, there was a scream. Somebody said, something touched me, you know. And then another scream. The iguana had gotten loose. Nobody knew where it was. This was before, you know, you could use your, your phone as a light. And so it was, it was pitch dark in there. The iguana's loose in there. They have such long tails. What was happening is the tail would rub against somebody's knees or something, and then someone else would scream. And every time it happened, Doggo and I were just laughing. It was just hilarious to us. It was just so funny what was going on in the back. One of the girls was standing up on the seat by now, and she did that for, I think, 45 minutes you know, just standing there because she didn't want any part of her over the edge of that where that iguana was loose. We finally arrived close to the, the place where we were staying when Doggo pulled over at this house and an elderly woman walked out to the van and apparently this maybe was prearranged, I don't know, but the, the lady walked up to the van and Doggo found the iguana in the back and gave it to her. You know, and she's probably in her 70s. He gave her this iguana, and I thought, oh, okay. I don't know what that's about, but it's, it's, we're done with it now. It wasn't until the next evening I found out what happened to the iguana. It was around dinner time. There, no one was preparing any meal, and I was a little puzzled by that. And then all of a sudden, there's someone knocking at the door, and he opened the door, and someone had a big pot of stew. And it was our supper, and as I began to dig into it, I noticed that some of the bones in the stew were just a little odd-looking. Saw a little claw in there. It was the iguana. It was quite delicious. I mean, it really was quite delicious. Uh, it, It tasted like chicken. For some of you, as I've been telling this, this story, and by the way, there was a, a, a couple here, a family this morning from Honduras. I didn't know that they were out there, and I knew them. I had met them down in Honduras. I said, are all these uh, details exactly right? He said, yeah, they're all right. Um, but anyway, some of these details I know are kind of disgusting for some of you. You know, even talking about an iguana for some of you might cause a visceral response. You know, years ago, we had a woman in the church that begged me, don't ever tell a snake story. And she was serious because she'd visibly shake if I began talking about snakes. She just couldn't, the word itself, you know. So some of you were maybe grossed out by that. Some of you are surprised that I, you know, talk about the mess that it made in the front seat. And some of you, maybe all of you are grossed out by the fact that I ate the thing. Had a meal of this iguana again. It was really delicious. But I realized aspects of the story maybe were a little bit disgusting for you. I want to ask you, have you ever considered the possibility that God himself finds certain things repulsive or disgusting, that God himself has a visceral reaction to certain things? 
It's true. In the Old Testament, I won't take you there because I'd gross you out further, but there's an interesting Old Testament law that demonstrates that God would get really, really disgusted if you did this thing. But in addition to that, God is repulsed by sin, period. Our God is completely holy, completely pure, completely sinless, completely righteous in every single way. He's so perfect and so holy, so pure, he hates sin. Can't stand it. Every time he sees it, I hate that, you know? And I think part of the reason is he knows how it impacts us. Now, if you think I'm overstating this, in Habakkuk 1.13, Habakkuk was an Old Testament prophet, we read, your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, but you are pure and can't stand the sight of evil. I love the way that's worded. You can't stand it. Now, we can relate a little bit to this. Because occasionally somebody does something in our world today, you hear about it and you are disgusted. You're angry about it, you're disturbed by it, but God is completely holy and all sin strikes him, he just hates it. It's so contrary to his very nature. And this explains one of the statements that Jesus made from the cross that we're going to look at today. The statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you've been here the last two weeks, we've been doing a series called Famous Last Words, and we're talking about the last words of Jesus as he was hanging on the cross. First week, I dealt with the first two statements that he made during that six-hour period of time. He said in reference to maybe the crowd that was gathered or maybe it was just in reference to the soldiers who were dividing his clothes, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So that's the first thing he said that's recorded. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And then the second thing he said was addressed to one of the criminals who was hanging on the cross next to him. He said to him, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Both of those have to do with God's wonderful forgiveness And it's what the cross is all about. And then, last week, I talked about the third statement he made. It was a statement he made to his mother and to John, one of his disciples who was standing there at the cross. And it shows the very heart of Christ and the love that he had for his mother, that even though he was suffering, he was thinking of her needs. He wanted to make sure she was taken care of. And so, speaking to his mother and referring to John, he said, behold your son. And then speaking to John, he said, behold your mother. And from that day on, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, took Mary, Jesus' mother, into his own home. Now, if you were here the last two weeks, you know that after these three statements were made, darkness came over the land for three hours. So everything was real dark for three hours. And then Jesus made four more statements. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me, which I want to talk about here today? Number two, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Number three, I thirst. And number four, it is finished. Let's focus on that fourth statement here, Mark 15, 33. It's found in Mark 15, 33 to 39. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
When some of those standing there heard this, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and fixed it on a reed, offering, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. Now, from Mark's account of this, you'd get the impression that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he immediately died. But we know from the other gospels, he said a few other things in between. That doesn't mean that there are contradictions between the accounts. It just means that Mark chose not to include the other statements. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said the other things. And then he died. And in between that were those three statements where he said the one and then the other. And, and you put all the gospel accounts together and you get this sense of what happened. Now let me describe this scene just a little bit where, where Jesus said these words. It's recorded, by the way, that, that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is only found in two of the gospels. It's in Matthew and it's in Mark. But it indicates that it happened immediately after this darkness came over the land for three hours, and I think this darkness is very significant. My Bible, by the way, has a footnote by the word, or the phrase, whole land. Darkness came over the whole land. And the footnote down at the bottom says, it can also be translated whole earth. It's not impossible that this was a darkness that spread throughout the whole earth. In either case, it was an indictment on all of humanity. Now, I think this is the correct translation when it says whole land. I think it was just that area because I think other civilizations or countries would have written about it. Hey, this strange phenomena from 12 to 3, everything was dark. But anyway, this darkness took over and people have tried to figure out what it was. Some have suggested, well, it was probably a solar eclipse, but my research indicates it, it was, it's impossible it was a solar eclipse because this was the time of the month when there was a full moon, and I'm not a scientist, but I've read that you can't have a full moon and a solar eclipse at the same time. Others have tried to figure out how this happened naturally, but the, the, the right answer from my perspective is it wasn't a natural phenomenon. This was something God did. And it was an indictment on humanity, and the darkness should have caused everybody standing there to stop and say, what have we done? It's a picture of God's great displeasure. It's a picture of the judgment to come upon the people that are standing there. The darkness, by the way, should remind us, or would have, I think, even the Jewish readers, perhaps, it should remind us of the darkness of the ninth plague upon the Egyptians in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Moses, how he was in Egypt with all the Israelites and they were enslaved there and Moses went to Pharaoh, said, take, let my people go and he wouldn't do it and so God sent 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. The ninth one was darkness. But the darkness on that occasion was very oppressive. In Exodus 10 and verse 21 we read, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. It was so dark they could feel it. 
Now, the reason I think the two events are connected here is because the darkness in Egypt lasted three days and the darkness on the cross lasted three hours and I don't think that is a coincidence. The same judgment that came upon Egypt was gonna come upon the nation of Israel. And then Jesus cried out in Aramaic these words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think he spoke in Aramaic for the sake of the Jewish audience that would have been standing there. And it would have resembled something elsewhere in the Bible, which we'll see in a minute. But Mark chose to translate it for his Gentile readers, and so he translated it into what's called Koine Greek. It was the Greek of the common people, so that people would understand the words of Jesus. And of course, now we have it in English as well. But some people said, well, he's calling for Elijah. It's possible some thought that. According to a scholar by the name of Grasmick, popular Jewish belief held that Elijah came in times of distress to deliver righteous sufferers. So there was this, this superstition there that if someone was a righteous sufferer, that Elijah, you could call for him and he'd come. Maybe people believe that, but most of the sources I read believe they were mocking him. And, and the way this really unfolded, if you, if you translate it from the Greek, it unfolded something like this, putting all the accounts together. Jesus had said, I thirst. And then someone went and got this, this wine or whatever and ha- held it up to him. But before it reached Jesus' lips, somebody said, stop, wait. Let's see if Elijah comes to rescue him. And so some people were waiting for that. Maybe he's gonna come. Let's, go, let's see a little miracle here, you know? Now let's look at verses 35 and 36. It says, when some standing there said, look, he's calling for Elijah. It says, someone ran then and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. This part of the story was prophesied about in the Old Testament. In Psalm 69 and verse 21, We read, instead, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Gall is basically a bitter plant. In some cases, it refers to even a poisonous plant or a plant like what's called wormwood. Instead, they gave me gall for food, and my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. In other words, they made me eat and drink bitterness, but this... This was a prophecy about what they were gonna try to give to Jesus, I think, on this occasion. Dr. Grasmick describes the scene, though. And by the way, I'm quoting Grasmick a lot more than some today because he's got a lot of the historical background information. He writes, likely a Roman soldier soaked a sponge with wine vinegar diluted with a mixture of eggs and water a common inexpensive beverage and raised it on a stick to Jesus' mouth so he could extract some refreshment from it. Dr. Vincent makes the point that this was like a sour wine and would have been a common drink for Roman soldiers at the time. Matthew, the gospel writer, when he talks about this account, though, makes the point that Jesus tasted it, but he did not drink it. And many have suggested it's because Jesus didn't want to to take anything that would anesthetize the pain. He was 
He was going to go the distance and paying for the sins of the world there. But also, Jesus was just fulfilling this particular uh, prophecy from the Old Testament. Let's focus then on this actual statement he made in Mark 15, 34. It says, at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lamach, Sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That statement, now let's come back to it. It was again in Aramaic. Those exact words are found in the Old Testament. They're found in a psalm that David penned in Psalm 22 in verse 1, where David wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from the words of my groaning? I believe that Jesus' Jewish audience hearing him say this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, would have recognized the connection. Some of them would have begun to wonder, is Jesus the suffering servant that David talks about in Psalm 22? Now, one thing I hope you get, and I talk about this fairly often, is that the Bible is filled with uh, prophecies, hundreds of them, the point to Jesus. And to me, those prophecies demonstrate that this is indeed the word of God. I mean, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that explain who Jesus really was, that his birth would be unique. They talk about where he would be born, where he would live, that he'd spend a little time in Egypt, he'd spend time in Nazareth, how he would die, why he was gonna die. There are prophecies about the fact that he would rise from the dead and there are prophecies referring to even the future where one day he's gonna reign. One day every knee's gonna bow, every tongue is gonna confess that he is Lord. These prophecies tell me that God didn't want his people to miss it. Throughout the Old Testament, starting in Genesis, there are prophecies pointing to Jesus. Every book, I think, of the Old Testament says something about Jesus, points to Jesus in some way, every single book. And yet they missed it. And I view it as a little bit of a sobering reminder for us because we know Jesus is coming back again. But I don't want us to be the ones that miss it either. He's told us ahead of time what is going to happen. But let's look at the the words again. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's odd about those words is that he didn't say, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? This is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus did not refer to God as his father. Jesus had even said, when you pray, pray our father who art in heaven all along. Jesus would use the word Abba, an endearing name for his father. Daddy, but on the cross, he didn't word it that way. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and so it raises the question, why? And I hope you realize these little differences are intended by God. They they mean something. What does this mean? Well, I think number one is that Jesus was, again, intentionally fulfilling Psalm 22. He chose the exact words. He was pointing to the psalm. And the disciples of Jesus would later remember all this stuff. They would begin to put it all together. But that's part of the reason he did it. Second, he was acknowledging, I think, that God was his God. And what do I mean by that? Well, sometimes when we go through really difficult trials, 
we turn away from God. We think, God, where are you? You're not my God anymore. I've known people that went through difficult things and, and really difficult things, and they did. They completely walked away from God. They said, you know, you're not my God anymore. I'm not gonna worship a God that would allow this thing to happen to me. But Jesus did not do that. And finally, I mean, he was just acknowledging, you're still my God, despite what I'm suffering. But then finally, I think he was referring to his father in what I would call a sterile judicial sense. I mentioned last week that when Jesus spoke to his mother from the cross, he, he didn't say mom or mother, behold your son. He said woman. And I talked just briefly about that and I explained that part of the reason he did that, maybe the main reason, was that she needed to see him differently. In that moment, she needed to see him not as a son but as the savior of the world. And so by removing the word mother, she could see him in a different light. I think the same thing is happening here in this story. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? God is now taking on a different role. He's taking on the role not of a father but as a judge. You see, in that moment, I think the sin of the world was charged to Jesus. And God was revolted. And God had to turn away. And he, in that moment, Jesus felt forsaken. He felt abandoned. Dr. Grassmith writes about this. He says, Jesus' cry combined a abandonment by God the Father in a judicial, not relational sense, and B, a genuine affirmation of Jesus' relationship to God. Bearing the curse of sin and God's judgment on sin, he experienced the unfathomable horror of separation from God who could not look on sin. This answers Jesus' question, why? Dying for sinners, he experienced separation from God. But again, it was a judicial separation, not a relational one. And this kind of answers a question I've had many years in my own mind about the whole thing. I've wondered, in what sense did Jesus feel abandoned or forsaken? Because we know that God is three in one. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's one God. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They operate as one. You know, the definition of the Trinity is three persons of the same essence. And so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have never done anything independently. They're one God. They live in eternal community. And so I've wondered this question, well, then in what sense did Jesus suddenly feel abandoned? Was he separated relationally from his Father? How could that even be possible? They're one. No, again, it's in a judicial sense. God put on the hat of a judge. It was time to judge his own son and turn away in that sense. Now, according to the Old Testament law, there's one form of death that's worse than others. It's hanging on a tree. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, and once again, I want to tell you that's a, it's prophecy. It's the only reason that this is worse than the others is because Jesus was going to hang on a tree. But let me read Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. If anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed, 
and you hang his body on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but you're to bury him that day for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. There's a special curse upon those who hang from a tree. But what Jesus then did for us is he was taking the curse for us. That's why he died in the way he died, so that he could take upon himself the curse. Now, you realize that all of us are actually cursed because of sin. God had told Adam and Eve this was going to happen. If, if, you don't, if, if you eat from that tree in, in the middle of the garden, which I'm telling you don't eat from, if you eat from that, death's going to come into the world. You know, you're going to die. You know, physically, spiritually, eternally. And death came upon all of creation. We all came under the curse. Read Romans 8. Paul talks about the fact that all of creation is groaning under this, this curse that was subjected to a curse because of sin. And all of us are cursed as well. In other words, we all die. Physically, spiritually, eternally, unless something changes that. What if somebody could come in and take the curse for us? That's what Paul said happened in Galatians 3.13. He said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. To be redeemed, by the way, means to pay the price to secure the release of someone or something. You pay a price and they're set free. Christ has redeemed us, paid the price for us to be set free from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Jesus was willing to do that for us and in that moment when all the sin of the world was charged against Jesus, the Father turned away. And I believe that this moment of suffering was greater than anything that Jesus had suffered up to that point. As bad as it was, that physical suffering, sometimes this emotional suffering is worse. And it really was to feel that abandonment by his heavenly Father at the moment of his greatest need. Grassman again adds to this point. He says, he died forsaken by God so that his people might claim God as their God and never be forsaken. See, the writer of Hebrews says that if we put our trust in Jesus Christ to be our Savior, he will never leave us or forsake us. When you're adopted into God's family, God will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and the reason he won't is because Jesus was forsaken for you. He was forsaken so you wouldn't be. Grasmick is exactly right here. Now, in a moment here, we're going to celebrate communion. Before we do, I'd like to read those Psalm 22, and then I want to make a couple applications. As I'm reading Psalm 22, I encourage you to listen for all the prophecies that were fulfilled in this moment as Jesus hung on the cross. And I want to ask you whether or not it's even possible that those things could have just happened the way they unfolded at the crucifixion accidentally. Psalm 22, beginning in verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and, and were not disgraced, but I am a worm 
and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. Skipping to verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength come quickly to help me. The two applications are these. One, throughout the Easter season, I'm, I just got to make the application to invite you or encourage you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. The way in which we receive the forgiveness that's described in the pages of the Bible is to put our trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior. We come to a point where we realize, I know I'm a sinner, I can't fix it. I need someone to deliver me, to rescue me. And you turn to Jesus Christ and you receive him. As many as receive Jesus, to those who believe in his name, God gives the privilege to become his children. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. To perish, by the way, means to suffer eternal ruin. You know, whoever believes in him will not perish. Instead, will have eternal life. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you receive him. Most do it through a prayer. Dear God, I know I've sinned. I need a savior today. I want to receive your son as the payment for my sin. If you're a believer in Christ, this should lead us to live a life of gratitude and to recognize that Jesus died for us so that we might live for him. In fact, in a sense, he died for us so that we might die to ourselves so that we might live. He died for us, we died so we might live for him which is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us since we've reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. I just want us to understand this is what the Christian life is about. My life is about you, Jesus, and I want to live for you. Now, if you have the elements, I invite you to join uh, with me in celebrating what Jesus did for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, right before he went to the cross, he was eating with his disciples, and at a certain point, he held up the bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And every time you take it, take it as a way of remembering me. And then he took the cup, and he said, this is the new covenant or promise that I'm making with you through my blood. Drink it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me because every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup together, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You're, you're proclaiming the gospel. You're co- proclaiming the message. And so we, we do this every month because we want you, us, we all need to remember what Jesus did for us. It'll cause us to live a life of appreciation, but it also reminds us that we're forgiven through Christ because in between the times that you do communion, you sin. And the basis of our standing with God is not anything we do. It's what he did for us. And we need to remember, you died for me so that I can live for you. You died for me and my sins are now forgiven. Let's pray. And then when your own hearts are prepared as you're sitting there, you can take the bread and the cup. Dear God, we are eternally grateful, literally, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, that he was willing to be forsaken so that we could be accepted that he was willing to become a curse 
so that the curse from us could be removed, so that we could have eternal life, that you've turned around that curse of death and turned it into eternal life. And so we take the bread in remembrance of Jesus. We take the cup reminded of the promise you made through his blood to accept us as your children through faith in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.